Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, thank you, Dean and worship team. You, uh, you, you do just lead us into the presence of, of the Lord. I hope you are all well today, and I'm grateful um, for Dean for coming and opening our time uh, before we open his word with prayer, we, we need to, to be engaged in that deeply. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Dean is uh, on our staff here at, at River Bluff. He, is, uh, he serves as the pastor for uh, crisis care and encouragement. Sometimes I get those mixed up as to what order they're in, but that's the role he serves in. And so if you find yourself uh, in need for prayer or uh, just someone maybe to, to talk to. Uh, you can schedule a time with Dean. You can contact the church office. You can go to, to his email, which is just simply the letter D in finger at riverbluff.org. And um, Dean will be glad to set up a time to, to have some time with you. And uh, it's one of the things I love about, about Dean and so many in our staff. They'll, they'll, they'll stop in order to, to minister to you where you're at uh, right then and there. And uh, so feel free to, to call uh, upon him. Uh, just kind of mentioning our staff, one of the things that uh, many of you may not know is we have two staff members who yesterday celebrated their, their five-year anniversary of being here on staff. Uh, Dave Harden, who is our pastor of missions mobilization, and Guy Smith, uh, who's our pastor for ministry mobilization, both uh, joined our staff about five years ago. And we're very, very grateful for uh, the day that the Lord brought them onto our team. Uh, and I, I especially am grateful for that. I want to I say something to those of you who um, are part of our student ministry. If you are uh, in middle school or, or high school, uh, I want you to know that I, we know, I know, our elders know, other church leaders know that this has been a, an especially kind of difficult time. Uh, for you guys and, and even through ministry here at, at River Bluff. And uh, I want you to know I, I've, I've been praying especially for you in some unique ways. And I would love to uh, meet with you in a Zoom meeting uh, this coming Thursday. I'd like to do a meeting with our middle schoolers and then a meeting with our high schoolers. And I just want to hear your heart and be able to report this back to our, our elder team about, uh, about student ministry uh, hopes that you have for it, joys that you've had in days gone by, uh, what ways has God uniquely used the ministry of, of, of Driven, our student ministry, uh, to bless you, to, to challenge you. And so um, I'm going to be sending out an email, hopefully tomorrow, if the storm doesn't prohibit it, uh, no later than Tuesday, uh, inviting you to join me um, for a Zoom meeting this coming Thursday. And so I hope you'll make, make plans to do that. I, I, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I hope you might do that as well. Now, there is a term that has been popularized, we'll, we'll call it that, um, in, in recent days, uh, everybody's been using it, not just here in, uh, in the Charleston area and, and not just in the U.S., but even globally. It was a, a phrase that was not real familiar to most people um, until about February 2020, and it's just a three-word phrase, and that three-word phrase is shelter in place. And basically what it means, we've come to understand now, is it means that we kind of 
stop all but the most essential of activities. We only go out of our homes for, you know, medical urgent needs or food or, you know, there were days, toilet paper if you could find it. And there was this idea that was foreign, especially to us here in America, that you don't go to work, you don't go to school, you don't leave your house unless it's absolutely necessary. Now, if, if somebody had told you that in January that that was going to be coming, you'd have probably said, dude, that sounds like a disaster movie, you know, that's just not going to be our reality. We wouldn't have thought it would have happened. And of course... Um, you know, the interesting thing about it now is in, in our broken and divided nation, that, that phrase has even become kind of a politicized. And you, you can get people all wound up on, on something like that. Now, as this thing has drug on longer than I think anybody really imagined, we've moved from sheltering in place for many to suffering in place. And then, as Dean prayed a moment ago, you just, just add in that mixture um, the likelihood that somewhere uh, along the, 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 the Atlantic coast this year, there probably is going to be a hurricane that makes landfall with the kind of intensity that's going to require local governors, state governors, to give an evacuation order. And so it'll be, go shelter in a different place. And... Who knows how long it would be before that would turn to suffering. So I think the question that this stirred in my heart to ask, is there a place, a true place of shelter so that if even if and when suffering comes, that we can feel completely sheltered? There is such a place. It's a shelter provided by God himself. But what we have to learn is how do we tuck ourselves in under the shadow of what the scriptures uh, describe as, as God's, God's wing? How do we get sheltered under his love and his, his mercy and his grace? And I'm hoping that this month, the month of August, that we'll learn how as we walk through God's word. Because it, 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 we have to learn it. It's a, it's a process. It's not easy. It's not just a switch you can throw. It, it's more like a, a journey. And so I want us to take this journey through the book of Job. Because it's incredibly, I think, relevant for our, our days and, and times, the experiences we had. Job had some incredibly similar circumstances that the whole world is facing right now. First of all, Job was afflicted with a horrible disease. And people feared that kind of thing in that day. Just like many fear this uh, COVID virus in our day. Job also uh, experienced massive uh, economic instability. He went from somebody who was well taken care of. He, he, you know, he had a good nest egg. Living was kind of easy. He went from that to somebody who lost absolutely everything. Also, while Job was kind of sheltered in place with his wife, there was a little bit of a relational tension that kind of rose up in that going on between them. They didn't see eye to eye on things, and, and in fact, things got a little difficult there. Another similarity that Job had to what's going on in our world today is he had some friends, and they were able to get together, but all of his friends couldn't get together. It was just about five of them, and so it was kind of like they met the requirements that most any governor has put out about don't gather in large groups, just, just small groups. I think another uh, relevant 
comparison is this. No one ever completely understood why the suffering took place. Job didn't. His friends never got it. They grappled with it. They wrestled with it. They talked about it, argued about it. But they never completely came to understand it. They asked questions like, is this, is this from God? Is this from, from evil? Is this from Satan? Is it brought about because of, of, of some kind of sin or someone's sin? So throughout the book of Job, Job himself primarily, but also, also Job's friends, they, they wrestled with understanding these, the, the, the reasons behind all this. And then one last similar way that I see um, a comparison here is Job's struggle was not over immediately. It lasted a period of time. Now, one of the things that anyone who has ever gone through any suffering will tell you is that suffering will require patience. So, let me just suggest that if you have ever prayed for patience, then right now probably what you ought to do is you probably should just stop and thank Jesus because, baby, it's here. We have, we've got to practice patience and perseverance. We're enduring. And the truth is, in order to do that and do it in a way that brings life, you've got to find a better shelter. You've got to find a strong shelter. So I, I want us to think for a moment just about, about this term sheltering or shelter uh, and how it's used in the scriptures. Some of you may be familiar with a book in the Bible called Ruth. It's a story. It's a love story in many ways. And in this story, Ruth and Boaz, as, as they meet, Ruth, she's a Moabitess. And Boaz, he, he's an Israelite living in Bethlehem. And Ruth comes with her mother-in-law to, to begin to live in, in Bethlehem. And she's working out in the fields that Boaz actually owns, and they fall in love. And when Boaz sees her and, and speaks to her, Boaz says this early in their, in their connection. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, he says, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. And so here, uh, Boaz has this word picture of what God is like to him, like this mother bird sheltering her young, keeping, keeping them close by under, under the wings. The psalmist, David, cries out in Psalm 27, he says, in times of trouble, he will shelter me. He will keep me safe in his temple and make me secure at, on a high rock. Again, Psalm 32, Adrian read this earlier. It's one of my favorite from the Psalms. He says, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs. Some translations say shouts of, of deliverance. So I hope you see this, this theme that's running throughout Scripture is that in a crisis, you need a strong shelter. You need a place that you can go and be, be completely confident in being sheltered. And Job found his. Job eventually found his. And I believe that as we walk through and study his journey, we can find what Job found. A strong shelter. Now, we're going to begin in Job chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you uh, to open them to Job chapter 1. I, I want us to notice uh, three very specific, what I'll call realities, um, about Job that I think will help us on, on our journey to find 
a strong shelter. Verse 1, Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born, born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 male donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now let's stop there in God's word for just a moment. It starts back in verse 1 with the statement, there was a man. And so what, what we're dealing with here is, is the history of, of a real man. This is not a parable. It's not an allegory. This is a real man with real life problems. Uh, he's real. I, I come to understand from study. Uh, in the scripture, he's referred to by others. In Ezekiel, the prophet, chapter 14, mentions uh, Job. In, in James, Jesus' half-brother, in his writings, writes about uh, Job in chapter 5. And what would truthfully be, it, would, it wouldn't be part of this kind of literature, ancient literature, if it was fictitious. And it wouldn't have been referenced the way it was in other parts of the Bible. And Job is also referenced in other places historically. But sometimes there's something else in the book of Job that's important to see, uh, to understand the, the reality of the book. Specific names were given. There's... there's Eliphaz the, the, the Temanite, and not only does it mention a specific person's name, but the location from which the, the town or village or uh, area from which he comes. And you'll meet other friends of Job specifically named and specifically pointing to where they come from. And so the names of people and places, these are real names. There's this place called Uz that's mentioned where Job is from. Now some of you are saying, I've never seen Uz on a map. Well, it's the ancient name of what we know today is uh, uh, an area. It was actually a kingdom, um, and it take, would take in, encompass part of, uh, of Jordan and, and Saudi Arabia. It's an actual place. And because this is a real story, I believe it gives us greater power of connection for, for us. It helps us navigate because we, we, we're walking through similar stuff. Now, friends, God's word is filled with actual accounts like this one from Job of real men, real women going through real problems. And the, the Bible tells us that one of the reasons that they're, that's true is that they've been put on display. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 15. He says this in verse 4. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scripture gives us hope. And it gives us encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Part of the reason that God put these in his, his word, these accounts of real people, is because God knew that if the Bible was just theology, it wouldn't satisfy. If, if the Bible was just rules and regulations, that alone would not help us. We needed real living demonstrations of people going through the similar things that we're going through in real time. Now, by the way, one of the, the reasons that you and I suffer the way that we do is so that others can see we're put on display to suffer faithfully. Just like, just like Job, just like others in Scripture, God, God wants to display his glory through 
our lives as we suffer. Second Corinthians, Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. He says, he, speaking of God, comforts us in all our troubles so that we might comfort others. When they're troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given to us. We'll be able to glorify God. We'll be able to point to him. So just like they were on display, God wants in our suffering for us to display his glory. That this is how people who are of faith suffer. Now I said earlier that Job was a man of authority. He, he, was, he was just an ordinary man. He was an exceptional, an extraordinary man. So extraordinary that God actually brags about it. I don't know if you can imagine that, but God bragging on you. Well, if you're in Christ, God does. He, he brags on you. Down in verse 3, we read this about Job. It says that this man, Job, he was the greatest of all the people from the east. Now, the word, the Hebrew word there uh, that's translated greatest is gadol. And it, it's a word that has to do with, with weight, with um, largeness, with something massive. But it's not, it's not describing the physical features of Job. It's describing his character, his reputation. This was a man of prominence. In fact, if you do go back and read in Ezekiel in chapter 14, you'll see that the prophet Ezekiel compares uh, this man Job to Noah. He compares Job to, also to the prophet Daniel. In the New Testament, in James chapter 5, Job is displayed as one of the, the greatest human examples of what it looks like to remain faithful and persevere and endure while in a trial. Something else that I think is important is biblical historians date the book of Job as one of the earliest books in the Bible chronologically. Now, I'm, giving you, I'm not going to give you all the details of that. We, can, that. we can do that another time. But I bring it up because the problem of pain, the problem of adversity and suffering goes back to the earliest written manuscripts of human history. We're not the first to experience problems. We're not the first to be put out. We're not the first to be quarantined or stuck in a place. That kind of struggle is as old as mankind. And it even comes not just upon ordinary people, but on someone in authority like Job. There's a second thing that I want you to see about Job. Not only is he, you know, this... This man who is well-known, this, this man who is prominent, Job was also a man in adversity. That's, this just describes him in, in so many ways. And it's actually the theme of the entire book of Job. Uh, it's what I think Job is most famous for. It, it's not being wealthy, although he was wealthy. It's not, you know, he was famous for having struggled with intense theological issues, although he did. But if you ask the, the, just the average person on the street, you know, who do you think of in the Bible who suffered the most? People who probably haven't even read much of the Bible will tell you, Job. That people just know that. Um, he's famous for being stuck in great adversity in every area of life imaginable. We read in Job chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. They point specifically to just some of that adversity. 
In chapter 7 it says this, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery, this is Job, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Now that is a very unattractive picture. That is just human suffering at its greatest. But that's the picture that most of us have of this man named Job. And see, no one on the planet that day, according to God, deserved suffering less than Job. And few people in history that we know of have ever suffered more than Job has. And that's one of the reasons that the the book, I think... Uh, of Job sometimes bothers us so deeply is because Job we know was righteous he was blameless he was he was faithful so much though that God bragged on him but he suffered so very much and the account of Job's life in the book of Job presents I think two really basic events that Job was tested in the first couple of chapters. I just want to draw your attention to one of, one of those. It's in Job chapter 7, starting in verse 2. It says this, Like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages, so I am allotted, please grab this, months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardened and then breaks out afresh. Now, folks, remember, this is only chapter 7 where we find Job's life description. This is what he's encountered. And it's already been going on for, for months. His pain lasted a long period of time. It lasted for for, for at least periods of months. And there's a series of disasters that overtake Job in, in, in that lengthy time in which all of this came. And just a quick list. Some of you can go back and, and read about this in the opening chapters. His children are killed. Every one of them. His livestock, which was vast, we read that earlier, was seized. All of it taken off. His property was utterly destroyed. He gets wave after wave after wave. This man of authority is is now this man in adversity. He's afflicted with painful sores from head to foot. And then after all that loss, there becomes this, his friends start gathering them around him. And they, I I like to think of them as armchair philosophers, kind of like, you know, an armchair quarterback. They they just come in and they they start espousing, you know, all of these philosophical reasons why Job is suffering. You must have done this or you must have done that or God wants this. And and Job actually kind of gets in there with him. Many of you know uh, a philosopher uh, named Socrates. One of the things that I love that Socrates said about philosophers was this. He said, by all means, get married. If you find a good wife, you'll be very happy. If you find a bad wife, you'll become a philosopher. Makes you wonder a little bit about Socrates' marriage a little bit there. But, and, and maybe even the marriages of, of these friends of, of Job. Even Job's marriage, we know, was, was tested with his own wife. 
Now, if I were outlining this book, there are, are basically kind of, in a, just in a simple way, three cycles of, of arguments and speeches between Job and his four friends. When you, when you study the book, that's kind of the, the rhythm that you'll see. And you'll see Job's struggles, and he wrestles internally with some of life's biggest questions. I mean, the, the, these, in, in the book of Job, you, we are faced with real questions about real adversity. And so it's a great book for us to kind of dive into in this, this season of our own history. I just want to point out four of those that just kind of jump out from my own reading. The first one that, that Job struggled with was this. How much freedom does Satan have? How, how much freedom you know, does Satan have? Now, I think most all of us would agree that, that Satan is limited. He's, he's chained. Uh, God has him actually under control. But here's the question. Dear God, why is the chain so long? Why, why is, I, I know he's under your control, but it seems like God, he sure gets away with an awful lot. And as you journey through the, the opening chapters of the book of Job, you'll see this invisible battle taking place. There's a conversation that goes on between Satan and God. And what it looks like on earth is that Job and his family are just kind of collateral damage of, of this discussion. And here's the thing that really strikes deep at our own souls when we read this. Job is completely unaware that that conversation ever took place. He, he has no knowledge of it. And you get to the end. He still has no knowledge of that conversation. And see, this is one of the first issues he deals with. Why is, why is Satan and evil given so much, so much leeway? What do you do when all of life makes no sense? You know, what, what, what's going on behind the curtain is kind of what, what I think Job would ask. Here's a second issue that I think he faces and deals with, and it's this. Why do the faithful of God suffer? All throughout those cycles of arguments and debates, Job consistently declared that he had not engaged in sin. That he had lived righteously and faithfully. That's who he was. But yet there was this great loss involved. But he still held on to his faith. He still believed. He still even spoke positively, though at times difficultly, he spoke positively about the goodness of God. So how do, how do you do that? Some of you might recall um, having heard this, this story about an ad that got placed in the paper uh, for something that was lost. It was in Lost and Found, and it said this. Lost dog has three legs, blind in left eye, missing right ear, tail is broken, recently injured, and answered to the name of Lucky. No. Somebody needs to change that dog's name, you know. It doesn't sound lucky at all. And so these are the kind of questions. This, this is what I'm dealt with. This is who I am, and yet I'm, I'm struggling. Two more questions that Job wrestles with is this, and, and there are more than these four, but these are four that were prominent to me jumped out, is what happens after death? Job kind of asked this question, after this life, is there going to be more suffering or are things going to get better? It's, it's not in your notes, but in Job 14, 14, you may want to go read it later. Just write down 14, 14. Job asked this question, if a man dies, shall he live again? 
If a man dies, shall he live again? Here's this man in adversity, and you know he is put face to face with his own mortality, that of his, his children. He's probably wondering, is he going to make it through this? And he starts wondering about the afterlife. Now, one of the things that I've discovered when people, especially after they've been given kind of a, a, a word from doctors, that there's nothing else we can do. There's no more treatments that we, we can offer you. I've had not tons of these, but some conversations with people like that. And one of the things that people want to know about during that, that, that those moments, they want to know about heaven. They want to know about what that, what's that going to be like? What is that experience going to be like? And I just want to, I want to say this to, to, to you if you're listening. If you're ever walking closely with someone in that season of their life, their, that season of transitioning out of this life and into the next, and they start asking questions about heaven, there's an incredible resource. It's a book entitled Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And it will do just a wonderful job of helping you answer that. I would even encourage you to, to get it, uh, the audio version and just play it for them. Let them just listen to it um, uh, while, while they're there. Uh, in their last days. Job also had a, a fourth question that jumps out at me, one that he wrestled with, and it's this. God, why, why is it so difficult to see you? Why, why, why am I having such a... I mean, he cries out. Job basically cries out. He's suffering. He's isolated. He feels cut off, and he wants God to show himself this is not in your notes, but in, in Job chapter 23, verses 3 and then in verse 8, five times Job asked this question why. He says, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to a seat. Lord, look forward, but, but he's not there and backwards, and I cannot perceive him. Job is saying, God, I just I want to see you. How do I, God, how do I live in this visible, tangible world and Walk with an invisible God. How do I communicate you, God, to, to others? The great theologian Oscar Wilde once said that suffering is a revelation. One discovers things one never discovered before. And that's just the truth about adversity, about pain and suffering. And Job, on this at least several month journey discovers many things about these issues. But here's one thing that I want to tell you in, in advance that you know he doesn't discover the answers to all his questions. See, Job was a man of authority and Job was a man in adversity, but Job also became this man of analysis. And we can understand why. I think all of us, when we suffer, we want to know, we want to know why. We want to know what's the cause. When, when we began suffering a physical illness, one of the first things we want is a diagnosis. Because living without that just seems like we're, we're despairing. And so we go on these search, we analyze, we, we look at the circumstances. Sometimes you, those, those thoughts send you to dark places. And Job experienced that. He, he questioned in Job 3, I, uh, th these are the, the verses I was referring to a, a moment ago, is verse 11 and 12 and then verse 20. He says, why wasn't I born dead? 
Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why was I laid on my mother's lap? Why did she nurse me at her breast? Oh, why give light to those in misery? Verse 20, and life to those who are, are bitter. See, verse 3, uh, those three verses ask this question, why? Why? God, why? And those are questions that people who are suffering ask. We try to, he's trying to figure out why is there misery in the world, in, in his world. And, and here's why I say he doesn't discover. Because you get to the end of the book and those specific questions are never answered. You know, Job kind of goes to his wife with this question. And her solution is basically curse God and, and die. That's her advice. Just curse him and get it over with. And Job, he doesn't get satisfaction from asking his wife. He doesn't get satisfaction from engaging with his so-called friends. And we know that they're all wrong in their assessment because you get to the end of this uh, journey, this account in the book of Job, and God says so. He says they're all, they're all wrong. And then God gives answers, but they're not the answers to the questions directly that Job was asking. Job does not get those questions specifically answered even when he is very frank in a conversation with God and God the Bible tells us speaks to Job audibly but instead of supplying Job with the answers to the questions that he's asking God does something very very different if you look in Job chapter 38 verse 4 what God does is he starts to ask Job even bigger questions God asks a question like this. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? So you want to ask me questions? Okay, answer this question, and then we'll, I'll answer yours. If, if you think you know so much, Job, about what's happening, what's going on, tell me how I pulled that off. And Job can't. And Job never actually gets the big question answered. God, why am I suffering? Why? Why? I pray that this would be something that you grab hold of and are captured by as we take this journey through the book of Job. Job never gets all of his questions answered specifically, but Job learns eventually to rest in his faith. He comes to this place where he is able to shelter, bring his life under the shelter of God's goodness. He comes to a place of rest saying, I can't figure it all out, but that's okay. And not only does he survive, but eventually, again, Job thrives. Let's jump to the end of the book and see what Job begins to see from his experiences with God. God has just spoken to Job directly, and now Job, in chapter 42, is responding back to God. Job 42, verse 1, says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, 
I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Get this, he says, but now my eyes see you. He's saying, God, I got you now. I understand. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. See, this is when Job is coming to that place of rest. He comes to the end of all the arguments, of all the struggles, of all the wrestling with questions and hurt and even lashing out of God. And now he comes to this place and he reduces all of it to two great truths found in verse 2. He says this. Number one, God can do anything. And number two, God controls everything. He states it very clearly, Job chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things. Theologians have taken that phrase, that term, and what they say is this. God is omnipotent. That's what Job is saying here. He's saying, God, you're all powerful. God, I know that you can do anything and everything that you desire to do. You have all power. The psalmist says in Psalm chapter 47, For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is the great king of all the earth. One of the greatest descriptions of the omnipotence of God that I've ever read was written by a man named A.W. Tozer. Tozer says this about God's omnipotence. He says, all his acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for a renewal of strength. God doesn't have to sleep. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite being. I just love sitting and thinking about the power that God has. It's the best description I've ever read. So Job comes to a place where he is now sheltering under the all-powerful reality of God. All of his questions aren't answered. All of his struggles aren't over. But he comes to that place where he says, God, I get it now. You can do anything. And then secondly, in that verse, he basically concedes, God, you're in control. I know that you can do all things, he says. And then he says that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, the big theological word that theologians use for that is sovereignty. And first of all, God is omnipotent, but then Job is declaring God's sovereignty. And sometimes people struggle with this word, and I understand it, but let me just say this. You will be a much happier person when you come to rest in the shelter of God's sovereignty. When you get to the place where you say, I don't understand all the details, but I am just going to rest in the sovereignty of God. See, when you accept that God is completely sovereign and all-powerful, you're just going to be at peace. You're going to be a happier person. You'll ask, how powerful is God? And you'll know he's powerful to make everything in the universe by speaking. He's powerful enough to take care of everything that I I will face in life, including my health, including my finances, including the difficult times I'm going through. God is able. God has the power. God has a plan. I'm a Trekkie, an old Star Trekker. And there was a character in the, 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 the original series, 
of Star Trek that I loved. His name was Mr. Scott. He, they called him Scotty. He was actually, you know, supposed to originate from, from, from Scotland. And one of the things that in almost every episode that Scotty would say, he'd say, Captain, I do not believe we have enough power. We need more power. He was always complaining. He was the engineer on, of the ship. And he always said, we don't have enough power. We can't break loose. We can't get through. It, it'll never happen. Friends, God never has a power deficit. Never. He never runs out. Your iPhone does, I know. But God does not. You'll never have to worry about that. And Job came to rest, came to trust, came to take shelter in that new knowledge that he saw when he encountered God. He doesn't have all of his questions answered. He says, God, I know that you can do anything and you control everything. And he found a strong shelter in God alone. Now I want to take just a couple more minutes to, to kind of close this out and boil down some truths that I see in this. And these, these are what I think of are, are kind of first steps to being able to choose to embrace if you want to find God to be a strong shelter for you. First one is this. Pain has and always will be part of the human experience. Has and always will be part of the human experience. Suffering, disasters, heartaches, Job's one of the most ancient of all scriptures he experiences. has been around for a long time. It's part of the human experience. The second thing that I think we need to embrace if we're going to find our shelter in God is this. Faithful, God-honoring people suffer as much as anyone. It's just a truth that runs throughout scripture. I don't know why, but God allows it to come. But I do know this. His purposes are always fulfilled, even in the middle of it, even when it comes on God's own people. Third truth that I believe we need to embrace if we want to find this strong shelter in God, and it's this. Absolutely continue to ask the hard questions, but know that all knowledge will never come now. All knowledge will never come now, and I, the, I want to emphasize the word now. It will come one day. For those of us who are in Christ, it will come. We, we, the Bible tells us we, we'll know, but it's a process. You'll get glimmers here on earth, but you won't know until you stand face to face with the God of the universe. You know, I, I have a little bit of an understanding that's my own of why I think evil exists. I've shared before about that, but I still don't get it. I don't, I don't get all of it. I still wrestle with it. But I do it under the shelter of God's omnipotence and God's sovereignty. A fourth truth that I would encourage you to embrace if you're going to find God to be the shelter that he wants to be in your life, and it's this. You can rest in God's power and control. You can rest in his omnipotence and his sovereignty, even without all the answers. That, that's possible to do. There's a, a great, I started to say little book. It's not a little book. It's a bigger book. It's written by Randy Alcorn. It, it says, it's, the title is, If God is Good. And it's a book a, a, about suffering that I would commend to you. One of the great lines in the book, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it for you, but it's basically this. Uh, Randy Alcorn writes these words. He says, if your faith must be based on a lack of affliction, 
then your faith will always teeter on the brink of extinction. If your faith has to be rooted in a lack of affliction, then your faith will always teeter on the brink of extinction. And so many of you, that's your faith today. You know, it, it just, it, it's kind of back and forth. Some of you are, have, have talked about this virus, the, 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 the difficulty that our world is in has caused you to start losing your faith. I've heard others describe other things in their life that their, their faith is, is diminishing. Well, I want to say something. Some faith is not worth keeping. Some faith you need to discard because of what the object of your faith is in. You need to let go of that kind of faith and, and get a real faith. Something that you can be anchored deep in, something that is not superficial. And friends, that's what Job did. Job left this, this weak faith for something even stronger. He was a man of authority and prominence and influence, and yet he toiled in great adversity, which caused him to analyze and really search for God. And he never got all of his questions answered, but he did learn how to do this. He learned how to shelter in God. He learned how to find his rest in him. I remember one time reading that in an eight-ounce glass of water, it, uh, an eight-ounce glass of water contains enough water molecules to create a fog that could cover about seven to ten city blocks. I don't remember the exact number. And diminish visibility to only like a hundred foot. Just, just in an eight ounce glass of water, that there are the, like 60 billion droplets that can get dispersed. And when, when the environment is just right, that little bit of water can create a fog so thick that you can't see. I, I just want to ask you this question. What small circumstance... What difficulty are you facing right now? And you're letting that small thing blind the reality of who God is for you. What, what is it for you? What are you facing right now that's keeping you from seeing God to be, be sheltered in his grace, in his mercy, in, in his love? Is it fear? Is it isolation? What, what is it? See, there is a God that you can shelter in. But in order to do that, I'm going to encourage you, maybe for the first time, to do something that's very counterintuitive. Maybe you're watching this, and you're, you're not a believer yet. You, you might consider yourself a spiritual person, maybe a good person, somebody who's morally upright, but you have never surrendered to Jesus. And right now, your faith, your ability to see God is in a fog. And you got these big questions and they're not getting answered. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to begin with crying out to Jesus. I want you to start by saying, Jesus, I, I don't have all my questions answered, but I'm coming to you. And I'm just going to receive you, and I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to accept you. And let me tell you what will begin to happen, because it happened to me. All my questions didn't get answered immediately, but I discovered this. 
I went from not having a relationship with God with lots of questions to having a relationship with God through his son and slowly beginning to having some of my questions answered relationally. There's power in that. It's sheltering in God. And you can do that right where you're at this day. Let's pray together. Father, we we come, many of us right now come as Job's. We come with lots of questions. We come in our suffering. We come saying, God, I feel like I'm in a fog and I can't see your beauty or your glory or your goodness anymore. Some of us have walked with God for years and those things are being challenged in this day. And I want to encourage you to draw near. And maybe you're, you're watching this and you've never trusted God's son that he sent so that you could have a personal relationship with the God of all creation. And maybe not get every question you ever have answered, but find rest and find the true shelter that goes everywhere you go being sheltered in God, who's all-knowing and all-powerful and able to accomplish everything he sets his mind to. And all you need to do to be in relationship with him is cry out. Realize that you are separated from him by your sin. Realize that he sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for that sin so you could have access to God the Father. And all you have to do is say, dear Jesus, I know I need you. I can't save myself. I turn from that thinking. I repent of that sin. And I turn to you. And the Bible says that those who call on the name of the Lord that way will be saved. Just call on his name that way. For most of us, what we need to do is this, because we find ourselves suddenly back here again, back here in this moment where we've allowed the circumstances of the world to fog our faith. And we just need to come back once again to God and say, God, I trust you. I believe who you are. And I am sheltering in your love. I am sheltering in your mercy. I'm sheltering in your grace. I'm sheltering in you, oh God. And you can make that decision right now too. As we worship him, give yourself back to him. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
I understand that in moments like these, you're, you can be struck with the reality that you find yourself back to where you've been before. Having been in a faith fog, God starts to lift it. And you find yourself here again, praising the Lord, knowing there's never been a single moment when you've been forsaken. Knowing that when you shelter in God, the one who is omnipotent, the one who is completely sovereign, you'll never be left alone. You will always find a place of rest, just like Job, who got to the end and said, I've never been forsaken. There's never been a moment when I wasn't under your power, under your sovereign plan, God. I don't have all the answers to all my questions, but I know that I know that I know that I can trust you. Live this day, live this season in certainty that God is not just in this place, he's in that place. Because the place where you shelter in him is always a place of rest in God. Trust him, build your shelter in him. I pray you'll join us for the remainder of our walk through Job as we learn to live in the shelter of God. God bless you. I hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.